0: Welcome to episode 34 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics, with your hosts, Peter Lim, and with Peter Alayji away this week, arranging his sabbatical in South Africa,
1: Laura Fair. And it's my pleasure today to introduce our guest, Professor Charles Ambler, who is the current president of the African Studies Association, the premier professional association of Africanists in North America. Former dean of research in the graduate school at the University of Texas, El Paso, Ambler has a long and distinguished career as a historian. He's published extensively on a range of topics from pre-colonial African communities and their resourceful methods of coping with colonialism in his book, Kenyan Communities in the Age of Imperialism, published with Yale in 1988, to the place of alcohol in the struggles between workers and mine managers in the Zambian Copper Belt, which was he uh, published in Liquor and Labor in Southern Africa in 1992. He's also written numerous path-breaking articles on leisure and different aspects of leisure. And today we will be talking with him about his role as president of the African Studies Association and his new project on media in Africa. Thanks. So welcome.
2: Thanks very much for having me, and of course I should start by saying I'm actually a big fan of the podcasts, as both Peters and Laura as well, and I've listened to most of them. And I want to congratulate you for for doing them. I think it's a great uh, service to Africanists, and especially to uh, scholars like me who teach at institutions where they don't have highly developed African Studies programs. Uh, it's a way for me to participate in a kind of ongoing seminar in which I can find out about a whole range of different kinds of topics.
0: Yes, well, uh, welcome and perhaps we could start by discussing the ASA because we've just come from a special meeting where you were talking about the various challenges and possibilities facing the ASA and one of them is this how, this question of how the ASA relates to its constituents and its partners in Africa, and as you've mentioned, being in a, um, a university without a, a large cluster of African studies faculty like we have here at MSU, there are all these different uh, issues involved. So perhaps you could, we could start by talking about the role of the ASA today and its challenges.
2: I mean, I think that from my perspective that the ASA is... Uh, an incredibly valuable resource for, for Africanists in the United States and, for that matter, globally. Uh, it's certainly the leading African studies organization uh, anywhere uh, in the world, and uh, we like to think of ourselves, I think, uh, as a global organization and in especially in terms of our relationship to scholars and uh, various practitioners who are based uh, in Africa. I, I might reiterate my point. Again, I think it's a especially valuable organization for uh, people like me. And there are many, many people Mm -hmm. like me uh, in uh, universities uh, around the United States and and elsewhere who uh, work uh, to a certain degree in isolation when it comes to our our topics uh, in Africa. And for somebody like me, the African Studies Association has really been uh, a major, probably the major lifeline, because it's a place where I can go every year uh, of course, you meet friends and you have fun, that's part of it, and that's a good thing. Uh, but you meet new people, uh, you interact with them, you talk about collaborations, uh, you you meet scholars from the continent, scholars from Europe and, and Asia even, and uh, you begin to uh, build these kinds of networks that are so important to moving our fields forward. And of course, you get a chance to engage around uh, key ideas. I mean, it's hard to imagine almost any of the things that I've worked on have somehow first uh, seen the light of day in some kind of presentation uh, at the ASA. And so many of the ideas that have influenced me uh, have germinated from uh, those moments that you have when you're listening to someone talk or listening to a discussion that uh, provokes you uh, in a new way.
0: And those ideas often come from other disciplines. And there's another question there about the ASA. How does it attract and keep or balance uh, scholars, graduate students from all these different disciplines? Well,
2: that's a great attraction, of course, of uh, these kinds of area studies disciplines and uh, the area studies associations like uh, the ASA in particular. And, And I think the African Studies Association is particularly strong in this regard, uh, in the balance that we have among different disciplines and the kind of uh, really wide range of sorts of themes and topics that uh, get presented. But it moves beyond that. It's, it's multidisciplinary in another sense, too. It draws together not just academics, uh, but also people who you might call uh, practitioners, Uh, people that work in uh, NGOs, in the development field, uh, in in government, uh, and various kinds of uh, human rights uh, organizations. And out of those kinds of uh, linkages, I think a great deal of very productive kind of thinking and work uh, takes place. I I certainly think that Africanists as as a group uh, have this kind of commitment to moving outside of academe, uh, moving outside the, the university, and connecting uh, with uh, communities in Africa uh, because of the kinds of research they do, but also uh, with uh, professionals who are doing other kinds uh, of work. And uh, certainly, uh, we're, uh, as scholars, we often uh, complain a bit that uh, those sorts of people don't listen enough. Uh, to um, what we have learned uh, as scholars. Uh, but it's probably true, too, of course, that we don't listen enough to what they learn uh, as practitioners. And, and out of these kinds of combinations, uh, very uh, interesting developments, I think, uh, can occur. And, I, and certainly the ASA board uh, is thinking very uh, aggressively about uh, creating opportunities for these sort of rich uh, collaborations to take place and as somebody in our discussion earlier was saying, uh, one of the great things about the meeting is that you can kind of go and you can say to yourself, you know, this year I want to learn about, and whatever the topic is, you can just kind of go to a series of panels and get yourself up to date. Um, you know, I've fallen behind on uh, developments in, in southern Africa, or uh, I, I don't really know what people are, are talking about right now in, uh, in fields in anthropology and Post colonial studies. And, and you can find uh, those kinds of panels and uh, not only just listen to what people have to say, but uh, engage the scholars themselves and, and uh, really make it uh, a really uh, exciting educational experience for you. And of course, you can also rely on the organization itself uh, to be representing us uh, at a national and an international level and weighing in on, on topics that are absolutely critical.
0: And just thinking about uh, the audiences at these ASA conferences, uh, last night you gave us a wonderful talk um, on audiences in Africa, film audiences, and this happened to be the first pres- ASA presidential lecture uh, at MSU, uh, a new uh, series, uh, but it got me thinking about the different sorts of audiences we get at ASA panels and also the different Uh, affiliates of ASA there's uh, a multitude of people and affiliates that you meet there and of course visitors from Africa so if if we think about the audiences at ASA meetings how does ASA juggle all these competing uh, demands for attention from affiliate groups and from visitors It's it's not an easy task and
2: no doubt the association and especially the staff of the association sometimes come under a bit of criticism because they're not sufficiently so it's perceived responsible to the desires of one particular group or another but as you are suggesting of course there are a multitude of these kinds of groups and interests and uh, but i think the thing that we have to stay focused on is that how good a thing that is uh, and even if uh, things Somehow, are get out of balance uh, from time to time. Uh, the more people that are in that big umbrella, the more kinds of different sorts of perspectives there are. Uh, the better off we are. And of course, there's a whole host of various kinds of affiliate organizations. And the association right now is trying to simplify uh, the rules that we have about affiliation uh, to kind of shrink down the number of categories we have and make the rules simple.
0: Who are some of these affiliates, by the way?
2: Well, the, the Lucophone Africanists, the Ebo Studies Group, uh, Nigerian Studies, Ghanaian Studies, um, Tanzanian Studies, uh, and then, of course, there are um, other kinds of groups, too, like the the Women's Caucus and, and so forth. There are many, many of these, some of which are, of course, more active than others, but all of which represent really important uh, initiatives and by them having their kind of organizational activities at the meeting and then also having uh, and organizing their own sessions, it really enriches the experience, uh, I think, for everybody. Um, for the most part, of, of course, those people that are in those groups uh, want the experience both of the intensity that goes with um, talking with other people with interests close to their own, and also the the, the stimulation that comes from stretching out beyond that and, and talking to a really wide range. Then there are the kind of undefined groups. Uh, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, new graduate students, more advanced graduate students, junior faculty, uh, people that are working in uh, non-academic kinds of positions. Uh, we have to find ways to uh, bring them uh, all together and find new sorts of opportunities. I mean, the world is changing. Uh, you laid some emphasis on uh, the, ta- the, the transforming digital environment, which, of course, is an important subject of study uh, in African studies itself, but it's also influencing uh, the way that we engage with each other, the way that the meeting might be structured, and, and the association itself has to think about these things also in terms of our uh, publications and other kinds of uh, s- support services uh, that we provide. One thing uh, that uh, just uh, in February, we introduced a new website. And what this website does is create the, the opportunity for affinity groups uh, to form. Uh, so you can get groups together and you can create uh, discussion uh, communities uh, within the uh, ASA platform. And that's uh, something that I think we're excited about. The board itself uses that model, but anybody who's a member uh, can uh, do the same thing themselves. And that's, uh, I think, uh, a, a, a nice uh, opportunity, too. Uh, certainly, the publications uh, are, are something that we need to lay emphasis on. I think too many people think of the African Studies Review as something you get when you're a member instead of it uh, of thinking of it in terms of its importance as a scholarly vehicle. One thing we've come to realize in the new digital environment is how important that journal is. Uh, it is downloaded. Articles from that journal are downloaded uh, at an amazing rate. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, that generates revenue, but I think what's most significant to us is the measure that that makes of the interest that there is in what's published uh, in that journal. And uh, one thing that's very high on our list of priorities is to make larger numbers of people aware of how much impact that journal is already having, and and then use it to uh, further advance uh, its uh, Reputation. Uh, The editor, Ralph Falkingham, has got some uh, great ideas about how to move forward with that.
1: Thank you. So, as a little segue, I'd like to pick up on some of the things you were just talking about in your talk last night African audiences from Hollywood to Nollywood. I think you did a wonderful job of bridging both academics and theory and practitioners in your discussion of audiences. And I wonder, for our listeners' benefit, um, if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you see as some of the links between audiences over the course of time from the colonial period up until the present and also the way in which audiences is continuities in the ways that audiences have engaged these media uh, whether produced on the continent or produced from far away places all over the globe.
2: Well as you know Laura uh, already um but listeners, of course, probably won't. I I came to this topic more or less by accident. Uh, I was doing research in Zambia and uh, on a a related topic, and I came across files and files of material on film and film censorship. Uh, This was in the official uh, archives and then also in the archives of the mining companies. And this very much intrigued me And I collected uh, information, and over a number of years, every time I went somewhere where I could find some material, I added to this pile. And and then I started to uh, come to grips with it. And, of course, the context for this is uh, Hortense Powdermaker's uh, really quite remarkable book called uh, Copper Town, which may involve uh, interpretations that today we, we think of as outmoded, but which include this extraordinarily rich uh, description and thick uh, description of uh, audiences uh, that is really quite rare, not just for African contexts, really, but for uh, any context in media studies. And, and what uh, Powdermaker's work shows and what the, the materials that I collected. Uh, from interviews and and in the archives also demonstrated, was the uh, amazingly rich world of movie uh, attendance and and for movie audiences uh, in urban Zambia in the 1930s and especially the 40s and 50s, uh, which you might call a kind of golden age for Hollywood in Africa where uh, audiences were just captivated by uh, films that were flowing out of, Hollywood, especially uh, Westerns, and typically they were watching serials and these kind of B-grade Hollywood movies, uh, but they were enormously popular, and as I've come to realize, not just, of course, in Zambia, but all over the continent uh, in all East, West, North, South, Francophone, Anglophone, Portuguese, and so forth, and uh, these descriptions of this were just so... Uh, intriguing to me because here were uh, large audiences of, of people passionate about this uh, movie form which it could hardly be imagined was more remote from their experience than, than anything you could, you could quite picture. And of course uh, the movies were poor quality in, in, in a, not in the artistic sense but in the actual physical sense Uh, They weren't very high quality either, I suppose, in the artistic sense. Uh, They were sometimes censored, uh, and uh, their sound uh, might be poor. And, of course, the dialogue was in American English, which meant that the vast majority of people in the audiences couldn't understand it. So what was this (laughs) excitement about? I mean, people shouting and yelling and engaging with the screen. And uh, at the Copper Belt in the 1950s, it's estimated that 50% of the kind of... uh, adult male population is going to the movies once a week i mean this is huge uh and uh, people are uh, you, you know guys are hanging around on street corners saying howdy and um <laughs> wearing chaps and 10 gallon hats and so forth uh, and so this uh got me thinking and so i've been exploring it um uh since then and the and, and in particular what is especially has emerged is the way that audiences capture these products for themselves. Uh, There's, of course, a scholarship of cultural imperialism, which might characterize these movies as kind of instruments of global media domination, Uh, but uh, this doesn't give credit, it seems to me, uh, to African audiences and to their kind of discriminating approach uh, to media. Uh, they, they took these people into their hearts, in a way, and uh, remade them uh, into Zambians or Tanzanians or Nigerians uh, or uh, whomever. Uh, now we jump ahead, uh, and suddenly, uh, in the last decade and a half or so, uh, there's this new film industry in Nigeria, uh, characterized as Nollywood. And now, for the first time, although there's been a tradition of uh, African filmmakers, Now, for the first time, we have African filmmakers that are making genuinely popular movies. Uh, And in places like Nigeria, much of West Africa, they have pushed uh, imports pretty much out of the market, or or substantially out of the market in many cases. Uh, And this has, of course, never happened before. We've never had uh, a moving picture uh, industry that's been, uh, in some sense, indigenous. Uh, And what this proposes to me is what's the connection between these two uh, phenomena, right? Uh, how, how is there a historical connection between that uh, very different, in some respects, audience for Nollywood films who are, these films are not seen in large theaters. Uh, they're seen in little, tiny theaters on in shops and especially in people's homes and these large audiences for, for Westerns back in the 60s and, and so forth. And so what I tried to do in the talk and what I'm trying to uh, work through and what what I'm working on now is uh, to what degree can you trace some uh, continuity in that audience? Um, In in what ways are these Nollywood films speaking to uh, people in similar ways that Westerns did or or later on the Kung Fu type movies or the uh, Bollywood movies? And in what ways uh, can we look at the appeal of the Nollywood movies and say to ourselves, well, in what way can we see that happening also with those Westerns? Even though the the media products themselves uh, seem radically different, Uh, how can we rethink the history of uh, the moving picture image in in modern Africa by repositioning our gaze (laughs) uh, from the artist and the filmmaker? Uh, to the consumer or audience.
1: Very good. It's a fascinating project, and it's even bigger and broader than you've just described, in that you're also contemplating dealing with a whole host of different types of media forms, including newspapers and radio programs as well. And it seems to me, it strikes me that in terms of Africans' ability to produce their own films, technology was key. the 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 video revolution. Now, the digital revolution has really been key to people being able to take up these instruments and not have to go begging for money across the globe to make a 35 millimeter film. Can you say anything about uh, the parallels or differences in terms of? African production of newspapers, which began much earlier and Africans controlled, especially in West Africa, and novels. Is that sort of a... Are there parallels there in terms of production or access to technology or that you would see through these different media, radio or...
2: Part of my answer, of course, is that we need to wait for the book (laughs) <laughs> uh, to figure that out, uh, because uh, that's, that's uh, uh-huh. the question uh, I'm asking exactly, <laughs> right? But uh, I think there is. Uh, on the one hand, I think we have to guard against uh, a kind of technology determinism. Right. And uh, right. one thing I'm trying to do with this book, which I, uh, the working title is Mass Media and Popular Culture in Modern Africa, is not to organize it in a way that's determined by... media, but inevitably it's very much clearly shaped by the audiences that kind that develop around these various media. And but in some cases those audiences spill over between uh, different media. And you're I think exactly right to point uh, to the case of print media. Uh, In this uh, age of new media, we sometimes forget that things like print uh, are technologies (laughs) and that in the late 19th century there was, uh, and through the 19th century, a radical transformation of print media, which made uh, producing newspapers and books and so forth cheap for the first time in human history and uh, available to wide ranges uh, of of people. And so uh, I begin, actually, the book looking at communities that, of an audience, if you like, that emerge in places like Lagos uh, and Accra in the 1870s and 1880s around these newspapers uh, that are published uh, by African, small African printing houses and the, the, the kind of cultural communities uh, that uh, mm-hmm. exist uh, around them and then how those evolve as the number of newspapers proliferate. Uh, the uh, s- the scale of their circulation increases, uh, and just but just looking at the contents of those papers, uh, you gain some uh, very interesting insights in- into this process, and also begin to see the continuities. For example, uh, the way that uh, we we think of uh, both film and uh, printed materials as as kind of fixed and, and something that you can take from, but you can't give back to. But of course, as we've seen with film, that's not the case at all. But also, too, with these newspapers, I mean, part of the uh, wonder of them, from my point of view, is the way that the, uh, the writers and the readers are the same people uh, very often. And there's this kind of interactive phenomenon. And this becomes especially uh, interesting and exciting when you look at the Onitsha uh, market literature, which uh, develops in the 1940s, uh, and 50s uh, in Nigeria, which I just find uh, an absolutely fascinating and, I might say, under-researched uh, topic. And these materials, uh, here you have the, the, a kind of equivalent to Nollywood in a way. It's the first really indigenous, locally capitalized, locally organized distribution system of uh, this uh, of of. Printed materials, small novels, how to books, all of these kinds of things. And uh, in fact, if you, but if you begin to read them and look closely at them, first of all, you see very interesting overlaps between them and the Hollywood movies. Uh, they reference them, uh, they use the, the kind of cinematic techniques and the way they're written. There's a kind of similar sort of character to the audience uh, use of them. Uh, And I I think, too, if you think of some of the stories that are uh, in them, uh, they seem rather closely and interestingly related to some of the the stories that emerged in these recent Nollywood films.
0: I've got a big box of these Nietzsche market uh, pamphlets in my office, and it's quite true. On the covers of some of them and the stories in some of them, reflecting themes like JFK, Mm -hmm. uh, many American themes, but also how to win a girlfriend, how to win a boyfriend. And that whole question of audiences of newspapers is a fascinating one, although it brings me back to this question you touched on briefly last night when talking about Nollywood, and you've already mentioned it today as well, the the ability in African countries to to self-finance uh, with these newspapers, of course, although the technology of printing was moving on, for the for the African newspapers, often because of costs, they were uh, forced into reliance on old printing presses. So the famous Abantu Batu newspaper of the ANC was actually funded by the Queen Regent Labot Sabeni of Swaziland, and then it struggled on through the 20s and finally gave up the ghost when it degenerated into a a new sheet of astrologers and patent medicines. But it's true, there were all these interesting um, audiences. Uh, One final question from me about these questions is is about gender. You had a very interesting comment last night about how the, the Nigerian film directors or film producers were aiming they're uh, aiming at, at at women audiences. Could you just talk a little bit about the gender aspects here?
2: This, this is clearly a, a topic that I need to think and work more on, and I'm looking for help and instruction from my colleague, Laura Fair, who I think is making this a central theme in her own work on uh, film audiences. Uh, but certainly, as far as the... In in historical terms, the audiences for Hollywood films in in Africa have been typically characterized as male and connected to masculinity and and series of male behaviors. Uh, But I think we need to uh, interrogate those assumptions more. uh, Because if you look at the audiences, there were many women in them, young women. Uh, and uh clearly, they were taking very important kinds of insights away from this these films and, and uh engaging with them uh, as well and, and so there there may be stronger continuities there than we think uh but certainly there's a degree of uh female control uh in Nollywood consumption that didn't exist. Uh, in, in the past, and that's an interesting development because to a very large extent these movies are consumed in a kind of household environment and it's believed. Now a lot of times to- uh, many of these topics just call out for uh, additional research. We, uh, a lot of these uh, suggestions are based on very preliminary sorts of uh, uh, insights, uh, but certainly filmmakers believe that women are making Critical decisions about the purchases of uh, f- films, uh, in many cases, a- and as a consequent, and of course, that reinforces itself in the films that the filmmakers themselves make, uh, and uh, in their the way that they're kind of that they're tailoring films uh, for a variation uh, for varieties of audiences. Right. Uh, certainly, there are still many films that uh, have much more of a kind of uh, male orientation, although I'm not sure we should therefore assume that it's only men uh, who are are looking at them. As uh, some of you may know, there's a really interesting feminist uh, film scholarship literature that looks at feminist readings of things like slasher movies and so forth, things that we think of as kind of uh, exclusively male. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, uh, this... uh, Suggest a kind of different sort of dynamic and also maybe a way that that the audience is uh, reformulating uh itself uh, and uh, one of the things though that i um, I had uh wanted to to mention a little bit uh last night and which I think uh we don't want to lose sight of is that if you read a lot of this literature, especially the new literature uh, on uh Nollywood film and, and literature on film in general, uh, the one thing that you can really walk away with from it is that, well, this is really serious business, right? Uh, by studying film, you can learn about uh, gender, you can learn about class conflict, you can learn about identity and, and so forth. And, and uh, I, I think we want to be careful not to lose sight of the fact that people went to the movies to have fun. To have fun. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, my presentation uh, last night, I, I showed a clip from this film, Waga Saga, uh, exactly to make that point, because I thought that the, the clip, which was a recreation of an of audience for a Hollywood film, just showed that delight so beautifully. And uh, I wanted people to be carrying that with them uh, through my talk so that they didn't think that it was, in fact, too much serious business.
0: Well, we've had a lot of fun talking to you, Charles Amber. Thanks so very much. And thank thank you for
2: having me. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes and to subscribe to the podcast you can visit our website at afripod that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D dot A-O-D-L dot Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu